The accepted relationship between humans and machines used to be a simple binary one. Robots were considered to have at least some advantages in the fields of mathematics and calculation, and humans were considered to reign supreme in the fields of creativity, art, music, and creative production. However, whether you look at musical composition or digital imaging, recent breakthroughs in artificial intelligence are demonstrating how machines are making significant inroads into creative pursuits that would have once been considered uniquely human. And this is opening up some fundamental questions about the relationship between man and machine, making us question whether artificial intelligence can ever be truly creative in the traditional sense. But this isn't the first time people have grappled with the creative potential of machines. In the Age of Enlightenment, AI was a major issue, and seminal writers like Jonathan Swift, Lawrence Stern, and E.T.A. Hoffman all attempted to make sense of the problem. I'm Will McCurdy, content editor of National Technology News, and to explore this issue, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Falk of the University of Sydney, previously a lecturer in 18th century studies at the University of Kent. Thanks for coming to the podcast, Michael. Uh, it's great to have you. I really appreciate everyone who can spare the time to come and talk to us. Very pleased to be here, William. So just to kick things off, Michael, when did writers begin grappling with the issues posed by artificial intelligence and the issues posed by creative machines? Well, I guess the, there's a simple answer and a slightly more complex one. The, the simple one would be that writing about AI is nearly as old as writing itself. There's stories about what we would now call AIs from as long as 2000 years ago. Uh, for example, in ancient Greece, there were, ancient Greece, there was the myth of Talos, who was a giant bronze automaton who guided the, guarded the island of Crete. In uh, ancient Buddhist writings, they talk of mechanical guards of the Buddha's um, tomb. Uh, there's the ancient Hebrew myth of the golem, which is still sort of a part of popular culture. You know, there's been movies made about the golem in the 20th century. And one example I particularly like is in the classical Chinese text, Lietze, which claims in the text to be from the 5th century BC, but it was probably from about the, um, the 4th century AD. In that text, there's a story about a man who brings a marvellous robot to see the emperor. And after demonstrating how well this robot can talk and walk and everything, he disassembles it um, to show that uh, essentially robots and all living things don't really have an individual existence, but are merely composed of parts. So there's many stories about AI from uh, across the millennia. I guess I said there was a complex answer too. The, the complex aspect of the answer is that you might not necessarily think that all of these different robots and automata and so on from across history meet our modern definition of AI. Um, so for some people, they might look back at Talos, the bronze man, and say, well, he's not really an AI. He's a magical bronze statue. Um, and I guess the, the, uh, the other way of looking at it, which I prefer, is to think, well, perhaps our own ideas about AI are too narrow and we need to uh, open up our minds about what AI might be. Uh, and one good way of doing that is to go back to the past and see the different sorts of AIs that people have imagined might exist and also have a look at some of the different um, meanings that people gave to AI. You know, today we're very scared of AI rising up and taking over our society. People thought about different things in the past. Sometimes they thought about robot rebellions but at other times they thought about different things that might not even occur to us. 
what do you think uh, inspired writers to tackle these issues hundreds and perhaps thousands of years before AI was a technical reality or even the an inkling of a technical reality? What drove people to it? Um, well, I guess uh, there's a couple of things. Firstly, would be uh, the, the great mystery of what makes something alive. You know, a story that may be familiar to many listeners is the story of Pygmalion from Ovid's epic poem, The Metamorphoses. Um, and in that poem, uh, a, a sculptor makes a statue that's incredibly realistic and then she comes to life and becomes his lover. Um, so there's that ancient dream of being able to create something that um, is alive, which, you know, in a, in a Christian mindset, which is perhaps the most familiar mindset to many listeners in, in Britain, in a Christian mindset, that's something that only God could do. And in many world religions, there's the same idea that only God or something beyond human could make a thing alive. So uh, that's, you know, really enticed people. The other side to it, of course, is that there have been um, technical advances in AI and robotics um, for a long time. Uh, some, of the, some of the examples are fraudulent. Like, for example, the most famous robot in 18th century Europe was the Mechanical Turk, which was a a robot in the shape of a Turkish man with a turban and a big pipe uh, who could play chess. And this robot was paraded all across Europe and people played chess against it and it would often beat human players at chess. Uh, it turned out that actually it wasn't a robot. There was a man hidden inside the machine who could see the chessboard and could control the robot's arm. So it was a complete fraud. But nonetheless, at the time, people thought that what they were looking at was a real robot, or at least some people liked to imagine they were looking at a real robot. Um, in antiquity, too, there were um, many famous automata, which were typically, you know, water or even animal-powered machines that could move in marvellous ways. So you could imagine going into a, a palace in, you know, third century Judea or something and seeing that the the local Roman ruler had built a whole bunch of fancy robots in his garden to amuse people who came. So there were kinds of technical advances. I guess um, what's changed today is that um, so much of AI is disembodied, it's software. So we've come to think of AI in a somewhat different manner. You know, in the past, most of the AIs that people encountered were really physical beings. They were robots um, in gardens or cathedrals or temples or in museums um, that they went to see. Yeah, the idea of AI fraud is actually fairly interesting to me because there have mm -hmm. been cases in the past few years of startups purporting to have advanced AI systems when in fact they have been merely poorly paid workers in a foreign country uh, mm -hmm. doing manual labour, which was then attributed to algorithms. Yeah. So it's, it's, well, that's it's, a big point. That's, I mean, and the, mechanic, the mechanical Turk examples are a great one because as many of your listeners probably know, one of Amazon's uh, lines of business is Amazon Mechanical Turk. Uh, and the point of Amazon Mechanical Turk is to get human tagged data that you can then feed into a statistical model. So, um, I mean, there the joke is right in front of everyone's eyes that the AI systems that we, we think of as AI today very often are really just the collective labor of many humans who have taken the time to tag all the data that the, the AI can then learn to represent and, and reproduce or apply in some manner. And I, I believe I've seen research over the past few years, but I'm not sure if I can uh, 
recall the exact name of the study off the top of my head. It's a concept of AI fatigue or people um, in technology journalism or people in technology uh, decision maker roles just becoming tired of fraudulent AI claims and mm. um, sort of exaggerations on the behalf of power of AI, which may not simply be here at the moment. Yes, well, I mean, uh, I can't really speak to that from my own experience because I'm not, uh, you know, I work as an academic and I, I've never been in the position of running a business and investing in a technology which then doesn't bring returns to my business. But it's not surprising to me. I mean, the um, one of the more famous examples of that, I think, is IBM's Watson, um, which rose to prominence when it, it won uh, a major quiz show in the United States, the name of which I forget. I think it might have been Countdown. Um, and uh, uh, so IBM programmed Watson and it, it won this famous quiz show in the United States. And then they started to market all of their AI products as Watson, making it seem as though there was one masterful, powerful AI in some data center owned by IBM in California or somewhere else, which was providing all these marvelous services and could do all these things. When in reality, it was actually multiple different products, not all of which really could be classified as AI. Um, and they were all separate systems doing separate things. Um, many of them didn't quite live up to their promise. You know, one area where AI has been, been big is in uh, hospital management and in uh, diagnostics. You know, it looked at one point like many doctors might be replaced by AIs or hospital administrators, but uh, some of that early promise hasn't quite come to fruition. Uh, and so it wasn't exactly fraudulent. You know, they were actually selling services that did what they said. But the the aspect of, of um, dishonesty there was pretending that there was some super intelligent AI called Watson lurking behind what was really just a whole variety of different software packages for different applications. Ultimately, for people who aren't from technical backgrounds, myself included, it's immensely difficult to decipher the false from the true. Uh, if you're not an expert in the field, it's almost impossible to say whether someone else is an expert in the field, if they know just 10% more than you do about a particular topic. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really going to be a minefield in the coming years. But just moving on uh, towards more towards your research that you've been doing, could you explain the concept of what a design fiction is? Uh, could you give some examples of these? Yes, yeah, so a, a design fiction... Um, you could you could define it just by flipping the words. It's a, a fictional design for something. So uh, they come in various forms. You know, it can be a film, it can be an art installation, or it can literally be a prototype of something, um, which a designer creates or a science fiction writer or whoever else to try and imagine what technology might be like in the future. So um, there are actually designers and engineers out there who produce these things on purpose. So an example is the designer... Um, Daniel Weil made uh, a conceptual radio called Radio in a Bag, which was literally a plastic bag with the different radio components inside it, and then they were attached to the outside of the bag. So uh, the point of this fiction was not that it was a, a, a good idea for a, a product that someone might actually want to sell. Um, it's, in a way, a deliberately bad product. Why would you want a radio that's the shape and size and firmness of a plastic bag. It wouldn't sit nicely on a mantelpiece. It can't be installed in a car. 
Um, but the point of the this fictional design, this made-up design for a product that no one will ever sell, is to ask questions about um, the way we make things and why we make them. You know, and this guy was trying to make, I guess, a rather obvious point about the way we we produce um, crappy disposable objects, uh, and also perhaps about the way we uh, conceal the workings of things. You know, this radio in a bag is in a transparent plastic bag so that you can see all the components. So design fiction can be a real design, a real thing, a prototype that's just fictional in the sense that it's never intended to ever become a real product. Uh, but of course, it can also just be purely fictional. It can be in a work of fiction. Um, so one of the most famous examples of that is the film Minority Report uh, by Steven Spielberg which was just intended as a piece of entertainment, of course, but to develop the film uh, and its futuristic setting, the, the team who made the film designed all of these computer interfaces for the characters to use, which were basically, um, you know, the characters would put on a sort of VR headset and they'd be able to see data in front of them projected on a screen and they could move it around with their hands. Um, and this was just intended to create a realistic setting in a film, but interestingly enough, the film then began to inspire actual designers who were designing you know, the next generation of um, VR technology and also of things like tablets and touchscreens. So it can literally be a design that's in a work of fiction, which then goes on to inspire future designs. That's what design fiction is. I guess in my research, what I do is I look back at the past at books that probably weren't ever originally intended to be design fictions, and then I turn them into design fictions by asking the question, well, what if we tried to make this technology from this, this old book? Um, and one of the ways I do that is to actually work with computer scientists in the fields of AI and creative computing to, oh, sorry, computational creativity to try and draw out some of the design implications of these fictional robots and AIs from the past. So moving on to a rather broad question, um, could you talk about how literature has laid the groundwork for human and machine collaboration uh, in the creative space? So mm -hmm. it's a bit of a tenuous topic because... Um... No, not really. It's, it's, a, it's a good question. So for this, I might focus on the area I know the best, which is um, European literature from the 18th century. Yeah, it's my special area of research. Um, and at that time, uh, AI had become uh, a really major topic in people's minds. Uh, and the main reason for that was that there'd been several key scientific advances um, which had enabled new sorts of technologies to be created. So, for example, at the end of the 17th century, um, the mechanical calculator was invented or perhaps reinvented. I'm not sure it was necessarily the very first time in history that a human had invented a mechanical calculator. But particularly the philosophers and scientists, Blaise Pascal and um, Gottfried Leibniz, uh, worked on and more or less perfected the mechanical calculator. Blaise Pascal got it to do addition and subtraction, and then Leibniz invented a special kind of gear that could make it do multiplication as well. And then throughout the 18th century, um, scientists made many advances in fields like um, uh, acoustics, uh, which and optics, which enabled them to think it might be possible to build an artificial um, a machine that could see and hear and uh, interact in the world. Um, and inspired by these advances, you know, about machines thinking and calculating and 
and seeing and hearing, um, scientists and inventors started to build all of these uh, automata. In terms of creativity, probably the most famous automata uh, were uh, the music playing automata. So uh, the most famous designers of these were um, Jacques de, de Vaucanson and Jacques Edros, who made uh, clockwork people who could play musical instruments. You know, there was a lady who could play the flute who had um, real lips uh, and her fingers would move and there were bellows inside her and you'd wind her up and her lungs would literally spit, press air out through her lips and blow the flute and her fingers would move. Um, uh, you know, there's another famous one, which you can actually still see in the museum at Neuchâtel in Switzerland, the, of a lady who can play the piano. So uh, when these sorts of things were going on, then obviously writers started to wonder, well, you know, is the music played by a robot? Is that real music? Um, if it is real music, what does that mean for human creativity, for human art? Uh, and one writer who addressed that specific topic about music was the, um, the writer of grisly Gothic short stories from Germany, Etia Hoffmann. Uh, in his short story, The Automata, uh, the characters encounter first um, a robot uh, question answering machine that uh, answers people's questions about their fate and gives really bizarre answers. A bit like if you ask a modern language model today on the computer to give you a sentence, it spits out coherent English that doesn't really, isn't really relevant to anything. This mechanical question answering Turk, it's a Turk, um, uh, also gives bizarre answers to people. Then later on, the same characters encounter a whole bunch of musical playing automata and they witness the builder of these automata playing a kind of symphony where he's, a, he's on an instrument and all of the robots are playing with him. And the characters have a big debate over whether this music is beautiful, whether it's actually music, whether only humans can be artistically creative or whether um, artistic creativity is something that's in nature. Um, and one of the characters comes to the conclusion that there is, to use the words from the text, a higher mechanics of music. In other words, he concludes that music might have a, a mathematical definition and that in principle, um, you could scientifically work out what music is. And therefore, in principle, um, a robot could be just as creative a composer as a human being could. Um, so yeah, that's just one example from the 18th century, but there are really many because these uh, automata, as they were called then, these clockwork beings who could do all sorts of things were a huge craze. Um, I think it's just such a difficult issue because I think almost everyone in the society has accepted the idea that a robot can be stronger than can be stronger than you or that a robot can be better at certain types of calculation than you or have superior memory. But I think... Mm will people eventually be able to accept that a, a robot can be more creative than they can or can produce better artwork than they can? And that's a very real possibility. And mm. how do you think that society will ever truly be comfortable with the idea that robots can be uh, creative? And do you think this could disrupt the society in any way? Um, well, I would say that... Uh... I'm not sure if it will ever be the case that everyone's comfortable with it, but in the past, there have been people who have been comfortable with it. Um, you know, in the books that I've studied from the 18th century, there are, there are some who are absolutely hostile to the idea that a machine could ever really think or create like a human being. You know, a great example of that is Jonathan Swift um, in 
his most famous book, which I'm, I'm sure many people listening to this have heard of, Gulliver's Travels. Um, there's a, a, one of the places Gulliver visits on his travels around the world to many weird and wonderful and fictional lands is the country of Legado. And in Legado, there's an academy where a man's built a machine that can write books. Um, and I mean, I'd encourage you to go and look at that bit of the book. You can easily find Gulliver's Travels. It's only a couple of pages. There's even a picture of the computer, this little, this little episode. Um, and Swift's point is that it's just absurd. This computer, um, uh, the way it works is it randomly shuffles words together from the language that Legardans speak. And then um, a human being, if a real sentence comes up in the randomly shuffled words, a human being writes it down. And then they keep shuffling, keep shuffling until another sentence and a human being writes it down. And to operate one machine, you need 40 people to crank the handles. So Swift's point is that um, machines um, can only ever be creative if actually it's the human being creative. You know, it's the human who works out whether the sentence is, is a, a coherent sentence or not. And that to achieve machine creativity, you'd have to enslave huge numbers of people. It's actually rather prescient given what we were talking about before with um, the number of uh, often lowly paid workers lurking behind what masquerades as artificial intelligence. You know, often it relies on a huge amount of human intelligence for the artificial intelligence to exist. Um, but there were others who were far more comfortable, um, you know, and a good example of that would be Lawrence Stern in his novel Tristram Shandy, uh, where there are many weird writing machines through and creative machines throughout the book um, and Stern himself um, describes the human being as a machine and talks about the wondrous mechanism of the human body and so on. So for some people, it's, you know, the human's a machine. So of course a machine can be creative because that's all humans are. Um, there's so many different points of view. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's hard to say what people's opinions will be in the future. Yeah, it's difficult enough assessing what exactly uh, people's opinions are at the moment. Yeah. So what do you feel is the best or the most meaningful, at least in your opinion, fictional depiction of machine creativity? And I know you've already highlighted a couple of examples, but mm -hmm. if it's just one in your mind that really stands out. Mm -hmm. um, well, of course, there are so many books from the 20th and 21st centuries on this topic. There are, there are somewhat fewer from the period that I know a lot about, but just to stick to the 18th and 19th centuries, um, obviously the most famous book on this topic is Frankenstein. Um, and uh, Frankenstein's an interesting one because it goes right to the question that, that you just raised, which is would human beings ever accept um, an AI that met them on equal terms. And Mary Shelley's prediction was no, that people would find um, an artificial being who resembled a human so repulsive that they would persecute them um, out of existence. So that's a really tragic and pessimistic view of um, what would happen if we ever managed to create a, an artificial being who was truly independent and creative and capable of changing and, and learning and so on. Um, on the flip side, uh, I've already mentioned this novel, but I'll mention it again. I think that the novel Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern is one that um, gives a very much more positive view of how a creative AI might, might coexist with human beings. 
And it's a novel that I think if you read, you, you might be surprised that I say it's about AI. Um, but when you peek below the surface and read it with a little bit of creativity of your own, um, a lot of the things in the novel you can see as, as interesting reflections on AI. Probably the most extreme example, uh, which I'll explain is this, that the main character of the book is Uncle Toby. And he's a retired soldier who was medically retired after receiving a wound at the Siege of Namur, which was a major battle in the Nine Years' War at the end of the 1600s. And he has a problem, Uncle Toby. Whenever he tries to explain to people how he received his wound, he can't um, make himself uh, comprehensible. He, he tries to explain where he was in the fortifications at Namur, and no one understands all of the technical vocabulary he uses to explain precisely where in the fortifications he was, because they don't know what words like ravelin and counterscarp and half moon mean. So um, the solution he eventually comes up with uh, is he moves to his brother's house in the countryside and he builds what I would call a landscape robot. Um, what it is, is he takes his brother's bowling green and he turns it into a scale model of the Nine Years' War, which he then wanders around and uses to explain exactly what was going on at every different battle and how it is the Siege of Nemo happened and where it was he received his wound. Now, at first glance, it might not really seem like an AI. It's just a bit of earth, you know, that's been turned to a scale model. But over the course of the novel, all these funny things happen with the Bowling Green that indicate that it's actually kind of an independent being that does things on its own. Um, and it kind of has its own way of acting, which is different to the human way of acting. Um, and but through the interaction between it and the human, uh, new things can happen. So sometimes these interactions have negative consequences. Like for example, um, when Uncle Toby wants to have some cannons uh, on the scale battlefield, he steals all the lead counterweights from the sash windows in the house. So the sash windows won't stay up. Um, and as a result, the narrator of the story, Tristram Shandy is accidentally circumcised one morning when he's trying to pee out of the window to quote the novel directly. So, um, you know, this is an unexpected consequence of this weird uh, bowling green coming into everyone's lives. Um, on a more positive side, um, uh, Tristram explains exactly why the bowling green makes such a good model. And it's because it is essentially software. As he explains, the ground is just soft enough to be molded by humans, um, but just firm enough to hold its shape. So it kind of has this ideal mixture of properties, which makes it literally software. Um, and that's what enables it to extend the human intellect, to extend the human um, imagination. And it enables Toby to actually explain to people what's going on at the Siege of Nemo, because it has these particular properties that allow it to create representations of the battlefield, which Uncle Toby, with his mere human ability of language, wasn't able to do. You know, he needs the bowling green in order to. Um, express himself fully. Um, and as a result, Tristram, um, the, the narrator of the book, describes this Bowling Green as Uncle Toby's tenderest part. You know, it's a really intimate part of Uncle Toby's body, he makes it sound like, because um, it's so important to uh, the completion of Uncle Toby's personality. So it might seem like a very bizarre example, but um, it does... Um, raise a couple of interesting points about AI, which I would just summarize as saying, number one, AI can take very strange forms. You know, I don't think anyone today would think of building a robot in the shape of a landscape in order to explore AI, but maybe that's what we need to be doing. 
maybe by exploring these very non-humanoid things, we might be able to develop an AI which is different to and therefore complements human intelligence. The other side to it is that um, AI really isn't, isn't separate from us. You know, in so much popular culture, AI is presented as, you know, a scary robot um, over there who walks around and has secret meetings with other robots and rises up against human beings and is very separate to and independent from humans. But, you know, in the vision of this novel, where human beings are mere mechanisms, uh, the different sorts of uh, machines and writing machines and this bowling green that that, that um, the novelist talks about, Lawrence Stern talks about, they all, they're all sort of entangled with human beings and somehow change humans by, by entering the human environment. So I think that's an important point that we're very much bound up with our creations. Yeah, exactly. And I feel that it is natural to try and place AI into more of a humanoid model, but I think as time goes on, as we're going to increasingly see the limitations of that. Mm. So moving slightly away from the topic of creativity, um, mm -hmm. how have you seen literature and perhaps more particularly literature of the 18th century uh, tackle issues of uh, AI ethics? Um, well, it's, it's remarkable that some, some books from, from that time raise the very issues that we're worried about today. You know, I think one of the, the scariest things about AI today is the fact that, you know, so much of it's based in big data and it can be used to spy on people. You know, this was the frightening thing with Cambridge Analytica and these days now with Pegasus um, uh, and with a few years ago, the, the PRISM program of the uh, NSA in the United States. Um, that because AI is so good at you know scanning through loads of data and picking out the um, picking out the the bits that might be relevant, um, that it, it makes it possible to imagine a society where literally everyone is is spied upon the whole time, uh, and it wouldn't require a huge network of human informants like the Stasi used, for example, in East Germany. It would it could be done by a small group of people with big computers. Um, you know, it's quite a frightening prospect. And this idea that AI might actually, um, you know, intrude upon our privacy was actually a, a concern of writers back in the 18th and 19th centuries. Two examples I would mention are um, the, the rather bizarre novel Adventures of a Hackney Coach by Dorothy Kilner and the play Faust by Goethe, the famous German playwright. This, this novel Adventures of a Hackney Coach by Dorothy Kilner was one of many novels from the period where the main character was an inanimate object, in this case, a hackney coach, you know, a horse-drawn carriage used by a cabbie in, um, in London. Um, and this intelligent hackney coach, um, basically what the novel is, is the stories of all of the people who come into the hackney coach um, and whose secret conversations are then recorded by the hackney coach because for some, in some, for some reason it's able to hear and then write down this book later on in its life. So... Um, all of these scurrilous deeds that people get up to in the dead of night, uh, you know, people that they, um, you know, affairs of adultery and uh, kidnapping and, uh, you know, highway robbery, all these different things happen. And the coach, because it's inconspicuous um, and because people, when they're inside it, don't realise they're being listened to, uh, this coach is able to, you know, spy on everyone and draw all these different connections between people and have a view on the city and its seamy underside that a human never could 
So um, obviously it, the novel was quite popular at the time. And I think one of the reasons was that it, it, um, there was that, that, that mixture of um, curiosity and horror excited in the reader where, you know, oh, what if we could be watched like this? What if our lives could be invaded by something like a hackney coach? Um, other novels in this genre, um, the main character was a coin uh, or an atom uh, or a statue or um, some other object that people um, might be indiscreet in the company of, um, but that if it was, you know, that is listening to them and, and recording their darkest deeds. So that's one example. Another example is the character Homunculus in this play Faust that I mentioned, who is a, a small artificial being who lives inside a test tube. It's a really weird play Faust. Um, and Homunculus can sort of float around through the air. He can levitate in his glowing test tube. Uh, and uh, at one point, the main character Faust is asleep and Homunculus floats over his head and is able to read his dreams and describes the, you know, the kind of naughty sexual dreams that, uh, that Faust is having while asleep, which he might not even remember when he wakes up, of course. And then Homunculus just tells everyone in the room about these smutty dreams that Faust is having. Uh, and one of the other characters in the room, Mephistopheles, who's either the devil or the devil's servant, it's never quite make, made clear in the play, Mephistopheles says um, that it's actually um, Homunculus's smallness that gives him his power. Uh, and, you know, when when I come across that part of the play, I can't help or or uh, this novel uh, about the Hackney Coach, I can't help but think of all these um, digital assistants that we're putting into our homes, um, and of course our smartphones and tablets, and the increasing prevalence of the Internet of Things. You know, these small things come into our lives and they seem unthreatening. Um, but of course, they could be listening. And at the moment, we've just got to trust Apple and Amazon and Facebook and so on that um, they keep our data private. And we've made this sort of pact where we believe they'll, they'll keep our data private and in return, we'll just give them heaps of data um, so we can access their services. Uh, but it is disquieting. And this was an issue, as I've just illustrated for writers 200 years ago. Yeah, I think the uh, coach analogy works wonderfully uh, with what's going on in today's society. Uh, ultimately, firms have access to more data on human behavior than ever before. And this is mm. giving them insight for the better or worse into how humans are interacting with content or mm -hmm. the way they behave. And even in the more literal sense, a lot of the research that is going on in the electric car field uh, human eye movements, how humans react towards danger, how uh, human attention spans. This, is, this, this, this knowledge is being built up by terabytes and terabytes of data, which is collected by these electric mm -hmm. cars, which is being used yep. to build this automated, automated driving. Mm -hmm. No, it's not, yeah, I, I wouldn't personally have thought to make those, those analogies, but the whole idea of uh, robots actually teaching us about humans is a very is a very good one and it's something mm -hmm. i'm glad that has actually been explored in the past mm -hmm. so just to draw things to a close uh with another perhaps quite difficult question so what messages or what's the main message that you think literature has for society as we move into an era of increasingly uh, advanced AI? Um, well, I don't think I can tell you what the main message of literature is because 
there are as many messages as there are writers, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, there's some there's some writers who are quite blasé about AI, some who are skeptical of it, some who are confused by it. I mean, there's so many different perspectives. Um, uh, I guess um, I might just give you one more example since I've got the time to give you an example. Then, then I'll give you sort of my view as a literary scholar who's looked over several of these examples from, from across the centuries and millennia. So one final example I'd give you is the, the 16th century poem, The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer. This, this poem um, was designed to uh, explain to courtiers in, in Queen Elizabeth's court how to behave properly. So each um, book, it's in six books, Six and each book is a poem of about um, three or four thousand lines, so it's it's a really long poem all up. It's like sixteen or seventeen thousand lines, something like that. Um, each book is about a different virtue that the courtier should practice. In the book of justice, um, uh, there's this really interesting character. So the main character of the book of justice is Sir Artigol, the Knight of Justice, but he has a sidekick um, who's called Talus, named after the Bronze Man from Greek mythology. But this Talus is different. He's a clanking man of iron and he represents the law. So Artigal is justice and Talus, this robotic knight, is the law. Um, and what Talus does is if he ever comes across someone who's breached the law, even slightly, he'll just thrash them to death without even thinking about it. Um, he enforces the law absolutely rigidly and perfectly in all instances and he's completely invincible. He can't be stopped. The only person who can control him is Sir Artigal, the Knight of Justice. And the difference between Talos and Artigal is that Artigal's a human and is able to temper justice with mercy. Um, but throughout the story of the Knight of Justice, um, he, he constantly struggles to actually control Talos, not because Talos is disobedient. Talos is absolutely obedient. If he tells the robot to stop thrashing, the robot will. So in principle, Artigal should be able to um, make sure that justice is always tempered with mercy. But as it turns out in practice, Artigal can't control Talus that well for a couple of reasons. In the first case, because um, sometimes he's simply not present. You know, at the end of the, um, the Book of Justice, Artigal goes in and takes control of an island, an island called Ire, which is clearly Ireland, where Edmund Spencer spent some time. Um, and uh, when he takes control of Ireland, he just sends Talos off to distribute justice and hangs around in his castle. So he just literally leaves Talos unsupervised. And at other moments in the book, um, he uh, sort of feels the, the, the impulse to mercy, but it's just too hard and it's just kind of easier to let Talos do his deeds. So I think this, I think this story is a, a really important one because um, it, it shows um, uh, what I think is the, the biggest worry about AI, um, which is that uh, even without realizing that we're doing it, we can cede control to it or um, allow ourselves to become less human as a result of its being in our lives. Um, you know, and I think this is a really relevant message today in the midst of the pandemic when uh, statistical models have become such a huge part of public discourse. You know, whenever politicians are making decisions about whether to lock down or what sort of enforcement mechanisms to impose on their people, 
uh, they're relying very much at the moment on statistical models, which are really just, that's what all AI is these days, it's statistical modeling. They're relying on statistical models to tell them what the consequences of their action will, actions will be. Um, and while on the one hand, I think that's absolutely necessary, we must do these sorts of things, use every tool at our disposal to understand what's going on. You know, Edmund Spencer and other writers who have described the way we become entangled with AI would warn us and say um, that we, uh, we mustn't give in to that innate human trait of laziness. We mustn't allow ourselves to, to cede too much to our, our tools and creations. We have to um, remember what we're actually trying to achieve and try and think through things with our own minds. Uh, so I guess that, that would be what I think is the most important message that I've gleaned from the literature I've looked at. I guess the, the only other really broad message I'd give is that uh, the world of AI is, is really even vaster than people think. Um, and people have been thinking about it for a really long time. Um, and you know, if you take the time to look back at some of these uh, interesting imaginary AIs from the past, uh, you know, they can really put a lot of things in perspective right now. So that would be my big lesson. Literature has does have many lessons to teach, which might be a little stranger than you'd expect. And I think it's wonderful you've highlighted the uh, immense diversity of opinion that exists in literature in regards to AI, um, the positives and the negatives and the gray areas. And mm -hmm. I think the Talos example works extremely well. Um, because I never thought I'd mention TikTok and the fairy queen in the same sentence, but on a more <laughs> practical level, content moderation using AI is a complete nightmare, a complete nightmare. Once you mm. start using a machine to decide what's um, illegal and what isn't on a social media platform, which is why you need content moderators, why it's considered to be such a difficult job, shifting mm. to the absolute minefield, which is the uncensored human on the internet. Mm -hmm. But... I think the final point you made about the potential danger of blind faith in statistical models and the uh, the danger that can bring. I think we, we I think everyone's seen that in the financial crash. Uh, you yeah. might be following a model perfectly, but that only makes sense if the model in itself is is correct, and in many cases mm -hmm. it's not. <laughs> yeah. So that's 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 been really wonderful, Michael. Uh, there's a lot of food for thought and. I don't know how many books you've mentioned, but a potential 25 book reading list. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's been great. So thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate everyone who could spare the time because I know we've got other stuff going on. But um, thanks again, Michael. And to our listeners, uh, goodbye. And uh, see you soon. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. It's great fun. <laughs>